Hi, everybody, and welcome to Juvenile Justice Awareness Month. This is Daniel from Pathways to Permanency, and you are listening to Resource Families Thrive by Stanford Sierra Youth and Families. Before we get started, please remember to like, comment, and share on our social media pages. Spread the word about the ways that your friends and family members can get involved in order to help a child who is in need of a long-standing connection with a person in their community. And that can be through foster care, adoption, or mentorship. I do want to give a special shout-out to all of the people who engaged with our last episode's Facebook post. You really helped us spread the word about our Wonder Mentor program, and that support is hugely appreciated. Because did you know that every time you like, comment, and share on a Facebook or other social media post, it makes it so that more people are more likely to see it? So thank you to everyone who did that for last month. You are what's working. If you are a first-time listener, Stanford CR Youth and Families is an organization with a long-standing commitment to serving youth and families in the greater Sacramento region. Any services that we provide are meant to support our mission, transforming lives by nurturing permanent connections and empowering families to solve challenges together so every child can thrive. Right now, we have locations in Sacramento, Citrus Heights, Roseville, Grass Valley, Woodland, Placerville, and Napa. Pretty soon, I'm not going to be able to get that all out in one breath. This episode is a little bit longer, as you may have noticed when you were getting started, And that is because we do like to provide foundational knowledge from the professional perspective. And you'll also get an opportunity to listen to one of our families who have been serving youth who are under the umbrella of juvenile justice while in foster care. So thank you for taking this time today to hear this information and to listen to this family's stories. Juvenile Justice Awareness Month is important to us in Pathways to Permanency because there are teenagers in foster care who are served by probation receiving services in order to grow, in order to develop, in order to learn more about their place in the world. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what it means to be a youth who is served by probation, who, you know, we would say who is on probation, who is a probation kid. And so my hope for today is that you will find out more about who these teenagers are and find out about how you can support them. So first up, let's hear from one of my colleagues from Juvenile Justice Intervention Services. My name is Elise Sampson. I am currently the Associate Director of the Juvenile Justice Intervention Services Program at Stanford Sierra Youth and Families. I have been with the organization for nine years. Uh, When I first came here, I started actually as a direct service provider. I was working um, in the field, in the community with youth and families that were on probation, uh, providing functional family therapy services. Um, Part of what keeps me at this organization and keeps me in doing this work, um, which I'm extremely passionate about, is our our mission, vision, and values at the organization are really everything. Um, They embody the work that we do day in and day out. Um, We really want what's best for our youth and families. We really try to make sure that we're empowering them. We are, you know, strengthening the family unit and really individualizing our services to best meet their needs. And I can say that 
you know, part of my interest in um, the criminal justice system initially, um, and even getting into the work was through, you know, my own personal experiences having a caregiver incarcerated and really learning um, the depths of the, the criminal justice system, the juvenile justice system, and um, walking away from it, just remembering like, oh man, you know, we made it through this, but I really want to give back and be able to help other families going through, you know, the tough times of incarceration. And um, I just remember, you know, how we were treated when we were going to the prison. And I really um, walked away with wanting to give back and do more uh, for this system. And to really, that's how I became a social worker, basically, is I just, I wanted to give back going through your own experiences really shapes, you know, who you become. And so um, I think that when I found Stanford, when, you know, it was a juvenile justice um, specific program, it really connected um, my own values and the passion that I have for serving the population with the work that we actually do. Thank you for being on, Elise. And could you do us a favor and describe your program? Tell us what you're all about. Our program is called the Juvenile Justice Intervention Services Program. We currently contract with the Sacramento County Probation Department to provide individualized, culturally responsive services to 100 youth and families in this county. I know that we've always supported youth served by probation in our organization since I've been here. One thing I don't actually know a lot about is how they get there what happens to get them to a point that they are on probation in the first place? You could wind up on probation for a variety of reasons. Um, generally, it stems from having initial contact with law enforcement um, for you know, a, an identified citation or a crime that's been committed. Um, law enforcement has two options. They can um, cite the youth and then release the youth to their parent or caregivers, um, or they can um, take the youth actually to juvenile hall, and then the determination is made whether or not they should be booked into custody, and a, a formal petition is going to be filed. So there's a variety of reasons that youth um, come to uh, the probation system. Uh, it's really then the court and probation, well, the court determining if the youth is gonna be on um, a informal probation, a formal probation, are they gonna actually have to serve time in custody? So once um, that determination is made on um, the citation and a petition being filed, it then kind of determines which direction they go um, through the juvenile justice system or through the juvenile court system. The, how they get to us basically is um, probation does an assessment, and through that assessment, it determines if they, um, what level of risk they're at to reoffend, basically. So if they're at a moderate to high risk to reoffend, then they would qualify for JGIS services. What we do in JGIS is very expansive. Uh, we have, it is modeled kind of, we call it like a one-stop shop where you could come and get a variety of services and we really wanna individualize those services to best meet their needs. So some examples of the services that we provide would include individual therapy, 
within individual therapy. It could be trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. It could just be other, you know, theoretical foundations or psychotherapy. We offer group therapy. We're currently in the process of getting a alcohol and drug uh, group up off the ground. We offer skill building support. Um, and we really base that on the needs that we determine through the use assessment process. So it could be decision making, it could be, you know, um, uh, job skills, communication skills, relationship skills. Uh, we really try to pinpoint what um, the youth needs the most support in and then develop a plan around that and start providing them skills on a weekly basis. We also still offer uh, functional family therapy. We offer a alcohol and drug treatment uh, model called the seven challenges. That's new actually to the whole organization. Um, many programs are trained in the model, but we definitely saw a need within the probation um, community for AOD treatment specifically. And so that's one thing that is new um, uh, in this new program model. We also have a youth advocate and a family partner. Those are folks who have lived experience and um, they can be matched up to appropriate youth and families for support, uh, really, um, really linking them. It's not so much mentoring, they can also do skill building, but their goal really is to support the youth and family and use their voice to empower them and to help them, you know, um, effectively work with the team of providers that they're in or on and um, to uh, also just uh, improve overall functioning by encouraging them to participate in services. Another huge component of our program is really our partnership with probation. As, um, as I mentioned, we've been working with them for about nine or 10 years now, give or take. And um, I think why our program has been so successful is because of that collaboration and that partnership. While we are two separate systems um, and, and come from different cultures, so to speak, we kind of are that bridge for the youth and families. And so um, we really try to get everybody on the same page, uh, support one another. They have an understanding of what the treatment plan is, what are the goals that we're working to. We meet with them on a regular basis through weekly communication meetings or through just phone calls outside of those times. And uh, we're really a team and that's how we've been able to provide effective services because we're all on the same page and it really helps, it goes a long way in I think reducing mistrust for systems um, and, and things like that. The level of detail of information that you're providing to everyone is fantastic. So thank you for that. I'm sure that everyone out there is really learning a lot. I know I am. I know that we have a changing system both within Stanford Sierra Youth and Families going from JJCP to JJIS and within the probation and juvenile justice systems at large. Which of those changes is really exciting you? Uh, what is it that you are looking forward to in the future of the work that you are doing? I'm really excited to see what the next few years bring. Um, as I was preparing for uh, this podcast, I was actually looking at some recent data that was showing that, you know, crime statistics within our state have, are down, so, you know, for the year of 2019, they're down 
I also know that our governor recently um, uh, signed a bill to close the California Youth Authority, which is basically prison for juveniles. So I'm very excited to see um, more funding allocated to communities to serve um, their youth and families. I, I think that finding alternatives to incarceration uh, is very important. I, I feel very proud to work at Stanford Sierra Youth and Families because I really believe it. I really believe that we're in it for the right reasons and we're here to like make an impact and make a difference. I can't say enough about just the folks that I work with on our team. I mean, they give 100% every day and are out there working with the youth and families and are just so committed to this population. Like, I mean, we love it, you know, we, we just love it. And so I think that um, I, I'm really excited to see what the future brings in such an uncertain time right now, but really with funding opportunities and, and more services available for juvenile justice youth and even transitional age youth. I think that's a, a, another population that we need to, to focus on and really target services that are effective and um, and do good work there. So I, I'm excited for that. But I think, you know, with um, just, again, preparing for this and thinking about the foster care to prison pipeline and just knowing what I know about youth in the foster care system, I really would hope that, I know the feature is juvenile justice, but I really um, would hope that caregivers um, understand that probation youth are no different than any other youth. Um, that again, they all need the love, support, and guidance of a stable person in their life, a stable home. And I think that, I mean, there's no way to quantify um, what you could potentially get out of this if you brought a youth into your home and, and showed them that love. So, are there any like myths or misconceptions about youth who are served by probation? I think there's a lot of myths just in general about both the criminal justice system and the juvenile justice system. I mean, the folks that we serve that are within these systems more often than not are just like everybody else. They're human, they, they've made you know, a, a mistake or had an error in judgment and um, it's brought them into the system. And so I think that you know, I approach it as just like they're human, just like everybody else. And so uh, they need many of the same things that we do, love, compassion, empathy, uh, respect. And so I, I would say that maybe there's fear around serving this population or, or just coming into contact with them. But the reality is, is that, you know, 70% of folks that are incarcerated come out and um, reintegrate back into our communities. And so it really is... Um, I think it, it does a disservice to, um, to not be invested in understanding these systems and developing things, strategies that are going to work um, so that we can see less recidivism. It's very costly to incarcerate folks. And so I think finding more alternatives to incarceration. We also know that it's extremely traumatic for youth, especially to be incarcerated. And then you add in mental health issues or substance abuse issues. And so really that is, I will say, the difference between the juvenile system and the adult system. The adult system is much more focused on punishment and the juvenile justice system is much more focused on rehabilitation and treatment. 
So we had a chance to pre-meet, pre-talk. I know you did some homework, which I always really appreciate. So tell us about the pipelines and that whole concept. So one one thing that we've uh, really looked at, or you know, it's definitely a talk in um, the field right now, is the obviously the school to prison pipeline. But as I was preparing for this podcast, I came across the foster care to prison pipeline, which is um, a phrase that I wasn't as familiar with. And I was really, I'm not surprised, but I guess just saddened by some of the statistics that um, I found and just the parallels between the foster care to prison pipeline and then also the school to prison pipeline. And, you know, some of some of that information was uh, I can give you a couple of examples that youth placed in group homes are 2.5 times more likely to get involved in the justice system or 90 percent of youth with five or more foster placements will enter the justice system. Um, And that the foster care to prison pipeline particularly affects youth of color, LGBTQ identified youth and young people with mental illness. And one study found that by age 17, over half of youth in foster care experienced an arrest, conviction, or an overnight stay in a correction facility. So again, while these weren't, you know, I I definitely going through a master's program, you were learning about these different uh, topics. And so it's, while it's not uh, unfamiliar with some of these statistics, it just saddens me that, you know, we're, we're seeing this pipeline And I really think that it's important that we interject and infuse support resources um, to to stop these pipelines. So I've always known JJCP and now JJIS to be really awesome programs. So I want to give you a chance to talk about successes. I want you to brag a little bit about what it is everybody does. I mean, I I could think of a number of success stories. And I think, you know, that's also one thing uh, as, a, as a social worker or working in, you know, the field of criminal justice and measuring success and what is success? What does that look like? And to be honest, I'll take the small wins any day of the week. I think the small wins <laughs> lead to big wins. And so uh, we see youth all the time who maybe, you know, uh, recently had a youth who hadn't been enrolled in school for like three years and is now taking active steps to get enrolled in school or a youth who had never had a job before and is now holding down two jobs, Um, or families who were having conflict frequently, maybe law enforcement being called out there, and after going through um, FFT or family therapy, you know, it's decreased the incidences of law enforcement coming out, and they're now negotiating and collaborating and solving problems more effectively in the home. I think that there's so many, again, it just, there's so many, those small wins, they add up. And I I think that uh, it's evidenced by, we just had, you know, two recent discharges and the youth are still calling their skills trainer wanting, you know, more support. They don't want it to be over. And I mean, to me, that's just so touching. Uh, I think that's beautiful. So I think uh, in, you know, there, there's, it's defining the success and really in each um, in each uh, family or youth that we're working with, at the end of the day, we hope that they're taking 
something positive away because they worked, you know, within our program and, and with our team. And so I really think that whether it's an increase in resources or, you know, uh, increase in pro-social activities, increasing their protective factors, if we've seen any re reductions in risk factors, um, you know, I, I think those, those are the things that we strive for every day and, and, you know, try to, um, try to ensure that all of our families have some of those small wins by the end of services. I've always got to ask, why should I become a resource parent who is supporting youth who are receiving services from probation? Why shouldn't you is what I would say first and for foremost. I think being a caregiver or a resource parent to a youth on probation is there might come um, with some um, transportation needs or having to shuffle from, you know, a court date or a meeting with a probation officer. But at the end of the day, they're just like any other youth who needs a loving, consistent, stable person in their life to provide them with, uh, to provide them with love and, and support. And so I definitely, the question would be, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you want to do that for someone who needs that? And yeah. Elise, thank you again for being here today. I really do appreciate it. And I've learned a lot. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that I didn't know about the juvenile justice system. And I know I've worked alongside you for years, but I also don't work in the juvenile justice programs. So this has been informative and educational for me as well. In just a moment, we are going to hear from one of our families who provide this care, this consistency and stability for these young people who are involved in this system. Our juvenile justice program and our Pathways to Permanency program don't have a lot of crossover. This is an opportunity for me to spotlight a program to tell you about a group of people and practitioners within our organization who realistically meet and exceed national standard for programs involved with probation similar to this one. Their dedication and their work to children and families will have a lasting impact on society itself as these kids, these teens, these young people grow and mature. And you can be part of that too. True to our mission, these lives are transformed. These Changes are lasting, and these people will remember these things for the rest of their lives. And as always, our goal is to make sure that every child can thrive. So here to tell you a little bit more about the things that they have done, about what it is actually like to care for a teenager who is served by probation, how they have supported these, these kids in care are Hillary and Kevin, so I'm going to let them take it away. Uh, so tell us, how long have you been doing this? Um, we started the process of resource family approval in December of 2016 and um, with Stanford, and we did a bit of a research. Hillary had some um, um, some experience having worked in the, the, the uh, children's mental health and foster care um, local um, local area 
And so she had a sense for, you know, the best, one of the better um, FFAs around. And so we, we immediately attached it to, to Stanford. And, um, you know, I think we were certified uh, in April or whatever of 2017. And we took our first, uh, we, we got our first placement in May. No, uh, no July. July, July, because that was a hard, <laughs> yeah, that was a hard, uh, that was a hard fight. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that drove us to become foster parents was, so I worked in the children's system of care, working for a local mental health and foster care agency. And Kevin works for the state of California with the Department of Social Services. So we kept seeing outcomes of children and youth in care. And we were particularly dismayed by the outcomes for children of color and teens. And so um, we decided that we wanted to make a difference and so while we work at a system level to make that difference, we wanted to really make a difference in kids' lives. And so we decided to become foster parents in order to specifically serve boys of color who are teens and languishing in care. Um, many of those kids are a part of the probation system. And one particular kid who ended up being our first placement through Stanford was the extreme um, example of that, the system failing him. So this young man um, was 17, going to be 18 in September. He had a long history with child welfare. He was removed as a child, um, abuse and neglect, family history of gang involvement. Uh, the kid never had a chance. He really just never had a chance. And now he, he had been homeless. He had nobody to take care of him. So he's kind of went and asked for help with the system and ended up going, you know, CPS intervened and put him in placement, but they kept putting him in group homes. They wouldn't even consider this kid for a foster home. And I learned about him. We had, I knew people who were working with him and he kept ending up, he ended up in juvenile hall because of some false allegations by a group home staff member. And so he had huge trust issues with the system, of course. He was African-American. Having grown up in the street life, he had, he had tattoos on his face. He was completely tatted up neck and face at 13 years old. So he looked scary. However, he was anything but scary. He was, he was a kid who didn't know how to build relationship. The world and the system had failed. So we went and reached out. We had Stanford. We worked with our with Stanford to try and reach out and see about getting placement of this kid, getting all the information. And CPS adamantly refused to schedule a pre-placement visit for us to meet with him. But because he was in juvenile hall, we were able to work with probation. We were able to get in and actually meet him and talk to him and kind of, and I started visiting him regularly. Kevin would go, I would go. We started building relationship with him before he was ever gonna be a placement. And ultimately the judge placed him in our care against recommendation from CPS, from the DA, and even against recommendations from probation. And the judge overrode that decision. Um, he came and he was with us for nearly a year. He had turned 18 while here with us, but he was still in high school, so he stayed until he graduated high school. So this is a kid who would have been put out on the street and ultimately been homeless as an 18-year-old if he stayed in juvenile hall. 
And in turn, he stayed with us, graduated high school, nearly 19 years old, and then transitioned to a transitional housing program. Never once did he do any harm to us. He was not a scary kid. We were able to travel with him and take him to DC. We took him to San Diego. We took him um, oh, to Colorado. Um, we got to give him some really new experiences as a point of reference of what life could be like and rather than what he had experienced. That was our first with Stanford. Yeah, that was the first. All right. Then six <laughs> of them six. Uh, what have the differences been like between working with kids with uh, CPS cases versus working with those with probation? With, uh, with a probation case, there is, there is added incentive. And I guess uh, there are teeth associated with, you know, working a case plan. I mean, there's more of an active uh, involvement with a probation officer and, and with a kid so that services that would help a kid kind of manage themselves in a house or in a family or whatever are, are more readily available. That's my observation. So I would say that um, we've had seven kids total, five of them placed by probation, two of them placed by CPS. With the probation youth, the collaboration prior to placement has been really involved with probation. Three of the five through probation, we were able to do visits with for an extended period of time prior to placement. So it really allowed us to build relationships with them. And that makes a difference. I want you to imagine for a minute being a 16 or 17 year old kid, not in your family home, bouncing around, being popped into one group home or juvenile hall, going here and there, and then being told, guess what? You're gonna go live with this family. And you don't know them. And you just, you just got, you get to meet them once and then you get to go live with them. That would be scary for an adult, but you take a 16 or 17 year old who's been abused and neglected, and it's even more terrifying. And probation kids and CPS kids, by and large, all have a history of abuse and neglect. Now, not every kid on probation has that history, but every kid on probation who needs to come into a foster home does. Whether it's recognized or not, it's there. And so the kids that have done the best with us who've really accepted our love and care and, and the, the family environment are the ones that we could go and a couple of them we went and visited at their group home placement for two or more months in advance of them, even before determining they were gonna come here. And that went a long ways because kids want to know that somebody cares. And by showing up when it wasn't our job to show up, we let them know we cared. And then once they're placed, one, we already have a relationship with them. Um, they have a little more openness and, and they want to be here. So that goes a long way in helping to stabilize things. Uh, services have been able to be in place in advance of the kids coming here, which goes a long ways to helping them stabilize. We have responsive workers through probation. So they have smaller caseloads than CPS. It is their job because their job is to supervise these kids in a way that it, CPS isn't mandated. and so. They're much more engaged and involved in the day-to-day -day activities of the youth and making sure that they have the supports and not just that the kids have the supports, but that we have the supports. So to hear all of that, it may sound like um, from the standpoint of a resource family, we may, yeah, we can, we can talk about having had a better experience with, uh, with our, our uh, probation partners than perhaps our child welfare partners. But 
I think a lot of that can be chalked up to capacity mm-hmm. and and the and the demands on 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 the systems. Uh, the the dependency system, I mean, in terms of a statewide ratio, child welfare to probation is probably the out of ha- the out of home caseload is what um, probably at this point twenty to one. So you know, uh, in other words, child welfare has twenty percent more children, and I'm um, excuse me. 20 times more more uh, more kids in care than probation. I don't know. The, from a capacity standpoint, the systems are just just more um, more taxed on the child welfare side. That's my observation. So when you look at a kid and you see a kid walking down the street, you have no idea if they live in a family home, a foster home, if they're on probation. You don't know that out the gate, right? So when we're looking at kids that come to us and we got those, we have those referrals. We, we don't see them as, Oh, this is a bad kid. They're on probation. Oh, this is a good kid. Cause they're in CPS and their parents did something wrong. It's not, it's not, it's not the same. Right. So the big difference that I see for kids that come to us for, especially ISFC or intensive service foster care placements, the kids that are in probation have externalized behaviors. The kids in CPS have internalized behaviors. They're the same kids, the same history with the same abuse. It's just how they cope with it is different. An important question. Why teens? Why boys? Why probation? Why choose to serve these populations? Well, um, I don't know. From my perspective, it's an issue of men and boys of men and boys of color. I mean, I think systemic racism has kind of put a target on our backs. And I think given a number of, of traumas and repeated areas of, of experience discrimination at, at the school level, in healthcare and mental health care or the lack thereof, the, the human services arena, you know, demonstrating some senses of preference for, for interventions that either work or not work. I mean, interactions with uh, families, with law enforcement, all, it, 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 all, it all comes together to create these situations where in a lot of our uh, families of color, there's crisis before that involves kids from either a young age or, or even experiencing trauma in their, in their pre-adolescence or adolescence to the point where, you know, the, the school to prison pipeline is a real thing. Yeah. You know, there's lots, of, there's lots of talk out there about, you know, prison cells being, being created for every kid who can't read by, by third grade. There, there are all kinds of, of issues around that. And when, one of the things that, that we experience and that we see, me systemically at a statewide level and her in her uh, local work here in the community is that a lot of, a lot of caregiving organizations just, just quit on kids. They, oh, quit on, they quit on teenagers. It's like, you know what, You're, people may, I, I mean, they don't necessarily voice this in public circles, but you can see by the behaviors that are shown, you can see by the, the, the narrations and the, and the service array that, that kids are exposed to, that we as a system, we give up on, uh, we give up on adolescents. If they're in a certain, uh, a certain negative place or a negative space um, um, in care or in, in a crisis in a family situation, um, the system isn't prepared to uh, to manage behaviors. There aren't they aren't prepared to to manage, you know, all the internalized issues that may 
make themselves manifest in a kid's behavior, we just quit on them. And so that that quitting um, has particularly harsh ramifications for for kids of color. I mean, you 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 show out in the wrong way if you're a, if you're a black teen who's who's five foot ten or taller. You know, a cop is going to treat you like you you're a like you're a thirty six year old man. The ramifications can very well be fatal, and so we just don't see enough. We haven't seen enough um, uh, interaction and, and people willing to jump in there without intimidation. And so we thought we'd give it a shot. That's my perspective. So for me, I really enjoy working with teens because they have a cognitive ability to really engage in certain conversations and I can give them analogies and they can track it. Um, I spent a lot of years doing independent living skills for a mental health provider. And so being able to teach those skills to youth, I know my niche and my niche is teens. I really, I'm able to engage with them. They can get it, right? I can also be real with them. And I'm, I'm kind of a realist when I work with all of our boys. Um, we chose boys, again, kind of like Kevin alluded to, and this is, right, this is a podcast, you can't see him. He's a, he's a black man. Kevin is a black man. And he has grown up with people who had poor outcomes. He's seen, he's seen it for years and had to fight to, to prevent from being one of the statistics, right? Fight, fight harder than the white counterpart that he grew up alongside. I got tired of seeing kids get stiffer consequences or penalties because they have brown skin. Working in a foster care system, I saw I I learned from providers that those brown kids that are boys, nobody wants to take them. And that's not okay to me. No kid should ever grow up feeling unwanted. We change generations. So you impact one kid you change a generation. What does your day-to-day look like with the kiddos that you've gotten? <laughs> so we're super duper structured. I think one of the reasons why kids do well with us typically are we are very structured. So it's waking them up multiple times because they never get up the first time you wake them up. Ever. But that's the same with every kid, every teen. Um, right now we're doing distance learning. So it's making sure, okay, here, get your pre-work done. Okay, log in. Nope, you got to log in today. I know you're tired. I know this isn't fun. We're going to log in anyways. Again, like every other parent in America right now. Right. Then, you know, there's, nope, you can't have just candy and chips for lunch. You need to actually have protein with your diet. <laughs> Again, like every other parent of a teenager in America. <laughs> so, um, but there's a lot of coordination with mental health providers. Lots of service providers coming in and out. Right. So there's making sure that, um, and there's advocating with those providers. So, and the educational system. But the other thing that we've seen with the seven kids we've had in placement, uh, all but two have had special education services. They've all had learning disabilities and they've all been far behind in their academics. And Unfortunately, as Kevin kind of spoke to earlier about people giving up on them, they pass the kids through. They don't really, there's nobody there to sit down with them and say, hey, you know, you have to actually know how to read and write to be successful as an adult. It's about getting them through if they can get them through. And let's just make sure we don't have any behaviors on the process. And so there's a lot of advocating with the educational system to to make sure that it's doing its job and doing right by these kids. So 
we painstakingly spend time with them in their academics. Right now, I am monitoring every Zoom session that our 15-year-old is doing to make sure that he's paying attention and make sure that the teacher is teaching at a level he can understand. And so a lot of my work is spent making sure providers are doing what is right, holding providers accountable, holding the schools accountable, making sure that they are A, supported academically, supported emotionally, building relationship with them, watching movies with them, playing games with them, explaining everything to them. Everything. <laughs> like, oh everything. everything. Yesterday we built garage sh shelves for the garage. Me and the two boys were out in the garage using the saw, using drills and building shelves. One of the things we, that I love to do most with them is take trips. So we always, when we go on a family trip, all of the kids go with us. We never leave anybody behind. Never. If Kevin and I are going on a trip or we're going on a date night, we make it clear that it's a couple's thing and it's a date night. It's not a family thing and they're excluded from the family. When it's family time, it doesn't matter what their behavior is. It doesn't matter what has been going on. They're included in family activities because we're family. So I know that you both keep these teens, these guys really engaged. How do you do that? What do you do with them that makes their experience with you so special? So one of our got one of our sons, he, um, he really likes to work with his hands. And so part, so I homeschooled him. So again, <laughs> we're really invested in their education. So prior to COVID, we homeschooled two of the youth that we've had with us because that was what was in their best interest academically and really socially and emotionally. And so during, through his homeschool, he participated in a program called Makers XD, which his charter school paid for him as like a elective class. And so he was able to do like metal shop and build things. And he really enjoys working with his hands. When COVID hit, he couldn't go to that class in person any longer. And that really impacted his mood. It made him feel really depressed and irritable. And so we worked with his rap team to actually get equipment for him, like a table saw, a belt sander. Um, and so we actually built together a jewelry making workbench. And um, he loved it. And so um, he learned about design. You know, we had to figure out how to build drawers. We had to troubleshoot. We had to iterate and problem solve. So those are all really real life things that kids need to learn. They need to learn how to fix a fence or, oh, gee, you know, I want to fix some cabinets in my house or do something. So they could have a job in construction. So it's exposure to real life skills that benefit them in their long-term future. Or cook. Or cook, yeah. One of our kiddos is cooking with Kevin right now. He loves, he's learning how to barbecue and grill. We provide a lot of supervision, so we don't just turn them loose with stuff. We're there every step of the way. So when that saw is on, I'm standing there, my eyes are on it. And if there's ever a safety concern, we're back. We're out, it's unplugged, it's done. So again, you have to be willing to invest the time. However, they feel accomplished. They have something to be proud of. They have something to say, oh, I helped build those shelves today. I built a jewelry making workbench. I know how to use a drill. Um, weld. Yeah, weld. One of our kids learned how to weld. He got a scuba diving certification. So it's something that it, it helps them develop skills for the future. It helps them find pro-social activities. 
uh, golfing. Kevin loves to golf. And one, we had one kid go to um, first tee. He loves golfing. He got some golf clubs. And so now he goes whenever he can. Kevin is into cycling. One of them is super cycling. He ended up working and saving his own money to buy like a $1,200 bike because he loves it so much. Um, the other kiddos getting used to the idea of long term, long cycle rides, but he's interested and engaged in it and trying. He likes going and hitting golf balls. So first of all, we treat them like they're our own kids. Yes, fostering has rules and the kids have rights and there's some nuances to that. But we treat them like our own kids. If I'm going to teach my own kids how to use a drill so that they can, you know, fix something around the house, I'm going to teach any other kids that's in my house. I teach all of them how to use a plunger. Like, you got to know how to use a plunger. (laughs) And so it's like, no, you don't leave a toilet filled with mess. No, here's a plunger. Here's how you use it. And then I have other kids teach the other kids how to use it. So, you know, um, it's real life. It is real life. And anything... Most of uh, most of what we're doing with them, around them, uh, we can turn into a, a learning experience. I mean, you know, this one sees a dart. You know, the the newest one, he sees a dartboard on the on the garage wall. Uh, and so, you know, a game of three hundred on a dartboard becomes hey, a a a very basic um, subtraction, addition and subtraction game. It's also an attention builder. So when there's yeah. attention issue issues with attention. But somebody can engage in an hour or two hours of darts, and they're doing math that whole time. Doing math the whole time. Do you? No, you subtract three hundred sixty-four from two hundred sixty. You you do that. <laughs> That's not my problem. Go for it. And you know, but we're coaching the entire time. Right. Like or cooking. Or, yeah. yeah, cooking. We're teaching them measuring. We're teaching them how to use knives safely. We're teaching them techniques, food safety. We don't want these kids going off to college and poisoning themselves because <laughs> they can't cook a chicken right, right? Um, so it's all about preparing for the future. Um, I think that's the other thing that has probably been the biggest difference for these kids. Um, we have expectations for them of success. And that's not something they're conditioned for. They aren't used to that. And so when we have these moments and they're not doing what they need to do, I tell them, I expect you to be successful. And that is earth shattering for them. And they actually, they take it. Like it might be a little bit hard for them to digest at first. But when you tell somebody, I expect you to be successful, that is not something that the probation system or boys of color are trained to teach when they don't have healthy families around them. And so again, you, you kind of answered this already. I just want to make sure I, I ask it very directly. What do youth who are served by probation need from a family or caregiver? They need a family. Yeah. They need people to love them and care about them. They need people to believe in them and not see them as bad kids. I think the, uh, the industry, particularly on the, the juvenile justice side, is growing to the place where family-based care is an option as opposed to congregate care. Even on, even on the probation side, looking at that as a, as a first option, not as is, I think, I'm hoping that that grows. Um, yeah, kids have, have really intensive needs and those, those externalized behaviors land them in a situation where they, where they catch a case, but doggone it, 
how many kids from just regular family, intact families are catching the case? A lot. <laughs> and so the, the needs are, are similar. And to the extent that a stable family culture where kids are expected to do better and are actually given, you know, a lot of attention and a lot of, of, of mentoring for, for success, probation kids can respond to that just, just, like, just like any other kid. I hope that this can really expand the family-based model and starting with families before short-term residential treatment programs will grow, but we need a fam, we need families willing to take these kids. So for that to grow and to really flourish and to really benefit this population at the level that it could and should, we need more foster families. So what, what does a probation kid need? They need a shot. If all they need is a family who believes in them, who supports them, who has expectations of them, why should I do that? Why should I be their family? You should become a resource parent to probation youth because probation youth are freaking awesome. My experience, at least, working with probation as the supervising agency has been great. And the kids need to be loved. So if you have love to give, give it to one of them. A, uh, a kid who's caught a probation case is still a kid, is still a teenager. There are a lot of teenagers. I was one um, who, who, you know, had problems, had to process my issues in my family dynamic and the whole nine. And un- unlike me, um, uh, a probation kid gets caught with an externalizing a behavior. That doesn't make them any less a kid who needs the guidance that you can provide, who, who, who needs the lessons that you can get, that you can teach, but who can also absorb all of that stuff and become, you know, every kid, a probation kid in particular, has an opportunity to choose a different path. And so often, the, the research says this all the time, moving from a negative lifestyle or one that a uh, one towards self harm into one that's that's going positively. A lot of that is heavily influenced by by a loving, caring adult in their lives. Just one. You can just one, freaking one. You can be that one. Be the one. I don't think there's anything I could possibly add to that. You two have been absolutely amazing through the years. It has been my absolute pleasure to get a chance to know you and to work with you. So, Kevin, I will let you kind of sign us out here. Until we talk to you again, keep thriving.